me. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Joshua chapter 6. That's where we're going to be tonight. And uh, let's get started with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you are an unstoppable God. You're not a dead God. You're a living God. And we believe that because you're alive and you're all-powerful and you're everywhere, you're at work in our lives and in our community and in our world. God, make us a people of faith and not fear. And Lord, I pray that we walk out tonight after hearing about how you're a God that's for us and with us. I pray that we walk out into this world confident and courageous, willing to take steps of faith to see others come to know you and to see our world change for the better. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. You know, our world is full of crisis. Every, in our everyday lives or in our uh, worldwide communities, in our homes sometimes, crisis is everywhere. And I think there's really two ways to respond to a crisis. You can either respond to a crisis with faith or with fear. If you respond to a crisis that comes up into your life with faith, you're paralyzed. It keeps you from pursuing your purpose that God has given you. But if you respond to a crisis with faith rather than fear, it changes everything. You can change the world. And I don't know about you, but my tendency when a crisis, something unexpected and unpleasant comes into my life, my tendency is to respond with fear rather than faith. And A.W. Tozer has this great quote. He says, what comes into mind, our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think our concept or our idea about God is what defines whether or not we respond to a crisis with faith or with fear. If I think if we have the wrong idea about who God is and what he's like and how he feels about us, it leads us to respond with fear rather than faith when a crisis comes. So a wrong view of God leads to responding with fear when a crisis comes. But a right view of God leads to responding with faith when a crisis comes. Responding in a way that leads us to take a step of obedience that can change the world. And over and over again in the Old Testament, we see stories, really throughout all the Bible, but in our new series, we're going to be looking at some stories from the Old Testament where people encounter a crisis. Sometimes they're in a life or death situation. Sometimes they're in a situation where a relationship's falling apart. Sometimes they're in a, uh, some type of conflict or they're in great need. And they start responding with fear and then they encounter a God that is both with them and for them, and it changes everything, and it leads them to taking these remarkable steps of faith. And so I think there's lessons here for us as we encounter crisis every day in our life. If we encounter the same God, if we get an understanding of how God is for us and with us, it can give us the faith and the confidence to take steps of faith in our life as well. And so we're in Joshua chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 1. It's a little bit longer section, but we have to get this whole idea, and then we're going to go back through and pull out some things. It says in Joshua 6, starting in verse 1, Now Jericho was strongly fortified because of the Israelites. No one left or entered. And the Lord said to Joshua, Look, I've handed Jericho and its king and its best soldiers over to you. March around the city with all your men of war. Circle the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear it sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout, and then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. And so Joshua, son of Nun, summoned the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, have seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of the ark of the Lord. And he said to the troops, 
move forward, march around the city, and have the armed men go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And after Joshua had spoken to the troops, seven priests carrying seven trumpets before the Lord moved forward, blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. And while the trumpets were blowing, the armed men went in front of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard went behind the Ark, but Joshua had commanded the troops, do not shout, don't let your voice be heard, don't let one word come out of your mouth until the time that I say shout, then you are to shout. Does anybody want to start singing shout? Okay. I kind of did it. I kept reading over this, and I'm like, that song stuck in my head. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the city, circling it once, and they returned to the camp, and they spent the night there. And Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets marched in front of the ark of the Lord. And when the trumpets were blown, the armed men went in front of them, and the rear guard went behind the ark of the Lord. And on the second day, they marched around the city once, and they returned to the camp. They did this for six days. So glad they didn't include each day written out here because that would be exhausting. They did this for six days. Early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. That was the only day they marched around the city seven times. And after the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets and Joshua said to the troops, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But the city and everything in it are set apart to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and everyone in, with her in her house will live. Because she hid the messengers we sent. But keep yourselves from the things set apart, for you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will be set apart from the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into the Lord's treasury. And so the troops shouted, and the trumpet sounded. And when they heard the blast of the trumpet, the troops gave a great shout, and the wall collapsed. And the troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. So I want to go back and pull out some things here because Joshua was in a crisis. He was leading the people of Israel after Moses. Moses had been this incredible leader and Moses had had this message from God that Israel was going to be taken out of bondage from Egypt and go to this promised land that God had given the um, Abraham and Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. And so they came to this land and they got there with Moses and they said, wow, these cities are really fortified. We can't do this. And they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. So now Joshua has taken over. Moses has died. And what's the first crisis that Joshua comes to? A fortified city. The very thing that had defeated these people 40 years ago, he was having to face very early in his leadership. He probably would have liked to build up some leadership credibility before he had to go back and face the very thing that defeated them last time. But God doesn't waste any time. Many times we want to avoid the thing that defeated us in the past. God likes to bring us back to the thing that defeated us in the past, not to defeat us again, but to show us that he's a God who can defeat our giants. He can have victory over the places where we have failed in the past. And so he brings Joshua to Jericho. There's just one problem. If you have a fortified city like Jericho, what do you want to do? You want to catch them with their gates down. You want to be able to rush in and capture the city before they fortify themselves. Because if they get fortified, how will they ever take this city? So Joshua gets there, too late. News had gone on ahead of them. The city's fortified. The gates are barred. No one comes in or out. Nobody's getting into the city. They knew the Israelites were coming. And I love what God says. You know, here's, I can imagine Joshua, he's up on a ridge. He doesn't have binoculars, but, you know, he's kind of looking at the city. And it's all fortified, and they have all the guards on the wall. And God says, look, I've given you the city. Now, I would have said, 
Are you looking at the same city I am, God? You know, like, it's fortified. You would have given it me if I had crawled up here and looked, and the gates were wide open, and the people, the guards were asleep, and it was easy to take. This doesn't look like you're giving it to me. But notice in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, Look, I have handed Jericho and its king and its best soldiers over to you. That's not what I see looking at that situation. See, our tendency is to see obstacles where God sees opportunities. There's this great quote from Anton Chekhov, who was a Russian playwright, and he said this, Only God has the eyes that are keen enough to tell the difference between success or failure. See, our tendency is to look at something and be like, that's a failure. Well, it might not be. It might be a success that we don't actually understand or see. And I think sometimes we look at something that God has brought us to in our life and we think this is an obstacle, this is a fortified city, and God says, no, 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 I've given this city into your hands. We have a tendency to look at something that we see as negative and our perspective is off. We're not seeing things how God sees them. I think sometimes we complain to God about things that he brings into our life and he's like, I've gift wrapped this. That's essentially what he's saying to Joshua. He's like, I've gift wrapped this city for you. It's just waiting there for you to take it. But in our human eyes, in our human understanding, it looks like, no, you haven't. What are you talking about? We have to be careful sometimes that we see things from a perspective that's human. God's looking at things from a heavenly perspective. And sometimes we need to correct our perspective by having an encounter with God. And so God gives Joshua this plan. And um, I know you shouldn't say this about a plan from God, but this is a stupid plan. Like just from a military standpoint, right? It, let's just separate it out from the fact that we're calling a plan of God stupid. But as a military strategy, this is not a good plan. Okay, if there's a fortified city, what do you do? You build siege catapults and you assault the walls or you try to break down the gates or you surround it and try to starve them out. That's the only approaches, or you can ignore it and go on, and they'll come out and attack you from behind. There's no scenario where you walk around the walls where they can shoot down on you and throw stuff down on you. This is a bad military plan. It's a bad plan that doesn't make any sense. Many times we try to understand the plans of God through our human wisdom. We think, how can this be a plan of God? We don't have enough people. We don't have enough resources. This isn't going to work. If it's a plan from God, we don't have to understand it. We just have to obey it. It looks stupid from the outside. It looked like it didn't make any sense. But all God's plans seem ridiculous until they succeed. Nobody at the end of this chapter was like, boy, that was a stupid plan. They got one victory over a city that they never should have been able to defeat. But sometimes when we hear the plans of God, we hear the commands of God, we think, well, that's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. If God is actually God, it would make sense that he has knowledge, that more knowledge than we do, more understanding than we do. And that means sometimes he's going to say things that don't make sense to us. And next, you'll notice in verse 4, he had, as part of this ridiculous plan, he says, I want you to take seven priests who carry seven ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and I want you to walk around. Now, it's interesting that he mentions ram's horns here. And you say, what's interesting about that? There's actually two types of horns that you see come up in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. One was a metal or silver horn that they would use in battle. And so in old times in battle, they didn't have walkie-talkies to be like, hey, attack the left flank. And so they would blow a trumpet, and there were trumpet sounds that would tell them, oh, I need to go left, or forces need to go to the right. 
But this was not a trumpet used for warfare. This is a different word here. These ram horns or shofars, you've probably seen pictures of them where it's like a curved ram horn and people blow them. These were used in worship. And so God is very strategically saying here, I want you to walk around the city, but I don't want you to walk around with the trumpets for war. I want you to walk around with the trumpets for worship. And so what God was saying was, I want you to praise the God of victory even before you see the victory. I want you to believe that I've already given you this even before you get it. I want you to trust me enough that as you walk around, you're not praying, God, give us this city. You're praising, God, you've given me this city. See, sometimes God brings us to things, and we spend so much time fretting about them and asking him to do something, we forget all about worshiping him and praising him for what he's already going to do. Yes, we should thank God for what he's done in the past, but we should also thank God for what he's going to do in the future because he, the God of victory is going to continue to give us victories. That's who he is. That's what he does. And I think if we don't choose to worship, what naturally happens is we begin to worry. And what he told the Israelites here is, I don't want you to worry. I want you to worship because I've already got this. I've already done it. You just are waiting to see how I do it. And so he told them to take these shofars, these, these horns that were used in worship. And so then they began marching around one time each day for six days. And I don't know about you, but day one, I'd be like, okay, Joshua, we'll try this. You know, why not? We'll give it a try. Day two, I'd be like, this is getting old. You know, day three, it doesn't take me very long to get bored, but something like, why are we doing this? Like, nothing is happening. Our tendency is to always give up before God does a miracle. You'll never be, have a greater temptation to give up than the night before the morning that God does a miracle. It's just our human nature. The closer we get to God doing something miraculous, the more we'll want to give up. The more we'll want to stop trying, the more we'll want to stop working. And I'm sure that some of these guys on day one, when they all gathered out there to walk around, they were like, okay, let's do this. But it probably got really old really fast. So scholars tell us that there were about 600,000 people who left Egypt. At this point, entering into the promised land, there was probably about a million Israelites. Can you imagine the logistics of getting a million people to walk around a city one time? And then you get them all back home. It probably took them all day. And then they get back home and you say, tomorrow we're doing the same thing. And they're like, well, I've got sheep and I've got uh, things I've got to take care of and I've got to take care of my children. And he's like, nope, we're walking around again. And they do this for six days. By that sixth day, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm done with this guy. I'm sick of walking around the wall. But had they stopped on day six, Jericho would still be standing today. See, I think a lot of us, we get to day six and we're like, I'm done. And if we had just held out to day seven, the walls would have come falling down. I think it's also interesting in day 15, it says early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. Nothing had changed day seven. So what I really like to see is when I take a step of faith, that God gives me some nice signs and indications that he's doing something. Right? Like, oh, the wall's starting to crack a little bit. Or, oh, did you feel that tremble? Maybe God's about to do something. No, there is nothing. Those walls looked exactly the same on day seven as they did on day one. As far as they could tell, nothing has happened. 
As far as the people inside the city can tell, nothing has changed. And they marched around again, and a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time. They marched around seven times on that last day. And up until that seventh time when they shouted, nothing had changed. Everything looked the same. There was no sign of success. See, many times we look for a sign that God is validating our step of faith. Our step of faith is an act of obedience. And it's not going to always have these little signs to validate what we're doing along the way. We take a step of faith because we believe that God is with us and for us. Not because we want to see little indications to affirm us along the way. And then you look down at verse 17 and there's this fascinating uh, addition here when it says, okay, everything's going to be destroyed when these falls, walls fall down, but we're going to save Rahab the prostitute and everyone in her house. You say, who's this prostitute? Earlier they had sent spies in to see how thick the walls were and how well fortified it was. And Rahab, she was a prostitute, but she says, I've heard about you, Israelites, that the one true God is with you, and I know that God is going to give you whatever he wants. And so I beg of you, when you take this city save my family. And they promised to do so. And so here is this, uh, this prostitute who's being saved in the midst of this city coming down. And it's interesting, if you look at the book of Matthew, where it gives us the lineage of Jesus, it mentions Rahab. Rahab actually becomes part of Israel, and she marries into Israel, and she actually has children who eventually become um, Boaz's descendant who marries Ruth, who ultimately becomes descendants to David, and from David's line ultimately comes Jesus. And so in the lineage of Jesus is a prostitute. If there's space in the lineage of Jesus for there to be a prostitute, there's certainly space in the family of God for people like us. And I love in this picture of God breaking down these walls, there's even this story of redemption and saving and rescuing. Uh, in this city where Rahab had been mistreated and had been reduced to uh, working in a, a sexual, you know, uh, selling her body to be sexually exploited. Here she was actually rescued out of this and became part of the story of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is still inviting people into his story today. He's still inviting people into his family today. And you might say, well, I'm not a prostitute. But you know what? No matter who we are or what we've done or what we haven't done, Jesus is still saying, if you want to be a part of my family, come. Anyone who cries out and calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. And he's still inviting everyone to come and to know him and be part of the family of God. But you'll notice in verse 20, it says, So the troops shouted and the trumpet sounded, and when they heard the blast of the trumpet, the troops gave a great shout and the walls collapsed. Now, it doesn't tell us, like, well, they were actually on this geological fault, and all those people walking around and all the shouting, you know, it doesn't tell us what happened. We don't know what happened. We only know that suddenly the walls fell down after six days of nothing, after seven times of walking around on the seventh day, nothing had happened. All of a sudden, the walls fell down. I bet all the people who on day one were like, stupid plan. This is stupid. We're now like, I was always on board with this plan. I was telling you this plan was going to work. This was going to work. You know, you always have those people. That would have been me. I would have been there like, I told you, Darby, this plan was a surefire plan, you know, because miracles only make sense in retrospect. See, we want faith to make sense. Well, it's still faith. Faith only becomes feasible after the fact. 
after God has moved, after God has worked. If it makes sense beforehand, it wouldn't require any faith. Faith is trusting God to act in accordance with his character despite what you see. See, if you have the wrong idea about God's character, how God feels about you, then you'll respond with fear rather than faith. See, I think faith overrides our natural tendency to fear when we have a right understanding of who God is, when we see God for who he is, when we see Jesus for who he is and how he really feels about us, it changes how we respond in crisis. It changes how we respond when we come to a spiritual fortress in our life and we think, what in the world are we going to do? What's going to happen next? God uses those to build our capacity for faith by stepping in when we step out in faith. And so you say, okay, Alex, what can we take away from this? What can we begin to put in practice? I think the first thing is we need to make it a practice of beginning to praise God for what he's about to do, not just what he's done. Sometimes we're, we're complaining to God about the things that he's brought us to that we see as obstacles when they're actually opportunities. The right response is to begin to praise God because he's at work in ways that we don't understand. Praise him for what he's going to do what he's about to do, the victories that he's about to bring. And number two, correct a wrong view of God. Many times we get a wrong view of God because of experiences that have begun to taint uh, maybe who we think God is, because we begin to blame him for things that he may not have done or he may have had a purpose that we don't understand. Sometimes we get a wrong view of God because we Googled something sometime and some crazy person on the internet presented their theology about what God is like and it's wrong. Sometimes we've just had people around us who have told us things long enough that we begin to have a wrong view of God. If you want a right view of God, I suggest opening up your Bible to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read about Jesus. See how Jesus talked to people, how he spoke to people, how he cared for people? That's how God feels about you. That's how God acts towards you. As you look at Jesus showing healing and showing compassion and showing kindness and continually forgiving and putting up with the stupid questions of his disciples, that's how God feels about you. He never gets tired. He never gets wore out. He's always compassionate, always forgiving. Correct a wrong view of God by going to the Bible, going to the stories about Jesus, and correcting it with a right view of God. And number three, think about a new perspective. So maybe you have a crisis, or you have something that's an obstacle in your life. Take some time and think, am I looking at this wrong? You know, when Je uh, Joshua came to Jericho and saw that all gates were barred and the soldiers were set, it would have been really easy for him to have the perspective, we've blown our chance at taking Jericho. But he had the wrong perspective on Jericho. Jericho was tied up with a bow. It was a present set ready to be defeated. Sometimes a wrong perspective keeps us from taking a step of faith. So think about the thing that scares you. Think about the thing that stands in front of you and you think this is in my way. Maybe it's just an opportunity and God's about to make a way through. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder that you're for us and that you're with us. And Lord, I think so many times you bring us to things to grow our capacity for faith so you can take us farther and to bigger things. But many times we get so sidetracked and we think, God, why do you do this? Why do you let this happen? Why do you bring me to this? And we're missing the fact that you've created an opportunity, not an obstacle. 
God, give us a right perspective and give us that right perspective as we remember who you are. God, remind us of how you love and how compassionate you are and how forgiving and how patient. Lord, forgive us for so many times having a bad view, a human view, a twisted view of what you're like. Because, Lord, I believe that when we have a right view of you, it changes everything. It changes how we'll take steps of faith, which will change the world. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would.